Hey guys, and welcome to Fika with Rice, a podcast about life hacks, inspirational life stories, routines, and keys to success. I'm your host, Frederick Van Huyen, and each week I meet some of the most incredible people in the world from self-made millionaires, best-selling authors, experts, and world-class athletes. My goal is to extract their wisdom, mindset, tools, so you can use them in your daily life, but above all, to inspire you. Let's get this Fika started. Welcome to episode 22 by Fika with Rice. This week we meet coach Anson Dorans, who's a legend in soccer coaching and building a competitive team. Anson has spent decades fostering and building relentless competitors and champions in his teams. As the University of North Carolina women's soccer coach, he's won 21 NCAA championships and also led the U.S. women national team to the 1991 World Cup championship. It's a complete understatement to say that Anson is the most successful women's soccer coach in the US. This is an episode filled with leadership nuggets and wisdom of what's needed to both lead a team but also be a successful team player. Let's get this Fika started. This is Anson's story. Let's go. Hello Anson, welcome to Fika with Rice. I'm so excited to have you on the show. 22 national titles, 90.5% games won. Name one of the top 25 most influential people in the history of American soccer. I'm really humbled to have you here on the show. So thank you for being here with me. Well, you're very kind. I appreciate that gracious introduction. So thank you. Anson, I thought by starting this conversation by asking you, when you grew up, when you were young, what was your first work experience like? I think my first work experience was delivering newspapers door-to-door in White Plains, New York, as a, I guess, an eighth grader transitioning into the ninth grade. So I think that was my first real job, was just delivering newspapers. What did you want to become when you grew up, when you were young? What was some of your dreams? My dream as a young boy was to go to West Point and be a soldier. So that was my dream growing up, was to uh, Basically, uh, going to West Point and being a soldier, I was, you know, I read uh, military histories. Those are my favorite things to read about. So for me, uh, my background was uh, I had this dream of going to West Point and being an American soldier. Why was that? I'm not sure, but maybe it was uh, the geopolitical realities of my upbringing because I was born all over the world. I was born in Bombay, India, lived in Bombay and Calcutta and then in Nairobi, Kenya, and then in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And then after several short stints in the United States, we moved to Singapore at the base of the Malay Peninsula. And then uh, again, after a couple of stays in the United States, we uh, as a family moved to Brussels, Belgium. While we were there, I was sent to a Swiss boarding school. So basically my life as the son of an American businessman was sort of consumed with uh, being an American patriot, because what's interesting is if you're an American raised overseas, uh, you develop a wonderful kind of patriotism because the world, of course, has a love-hate relationship with the United States. So we, uh, as an American raised overseas, you end up spending your life defending American foreign policy, right or wrong. So for me, a part of you know defending, I guess, American foreign policy sort of um, morphed into uh, becoming an American soldier to defend uh, the American foreign policies that I would defend as a boy. So for me, 
I guess it was a logical progression from the way I had lived my life. What role did your I mean, it's fascinating to hear that you grew up like in so many interesting cultures, you know. Singapore is so different to India. You said your fa- your father was a businessman. What did you learn from your parents when you grew up? And were you closer to your mom or your father? Actually, I was pretty close to both of them. My mother was the best athlete in the family, which was interesting, which really sort of benefited me when I ended up coaching women because I never had any preconceived notions about the classic inferiority of women as athletes because in my family the women were the best athletes. My younger sister was a superior athlete to me and my mother was a better athlete than my father. So I was brought up in a culture in my home where the best athletes were the women. So when I started coaching women, it was a real benefit to me because I never condescended in coaching the the women that I was given. I think uh, when the games uh the soccer I guess evolution and revolution in the United States began, I think a lot of the people that uh, were ended up uh, coaching young girls and young women were people that had previously coached men. And I think uh, the attitude that most of us had when we started coaching girls and women for the first time was to take it easier on them, to condescend in training them, to not make our standards as high. And as a result, I think uh, it put those other coaches in a more challenging position to the position I was in. Right out of the gate, I challenged the women I was given in a very aggressive way. And of course, they responded. And as a result, uh, we have a history, as you mentioned in the intro, of success. And I think a part of it was treating them uh, with the capacity to do extraordinary things in athletics, to challenge their fitness base, to challenge their psychological dimension, to challenge their capacity to compete and all the different things uh, where gender differences, I think, uh, way back in the day when I started coaching, were trying to uh, classify women in sort of a different mode. And actually, your show, obviously, is dealing with entrepreneurship, I think still a very untapped resource for uh, the world right now are the potential for women to be extraordinarily successful in absolutely everything. And even though I think that's changing now, where uh, certainly in the United States now, the most educated part of our population now are the uh, young women growing up, and the boys are starting to fall behind. So I think what's going to start to happen, certainly in your world, is women are going to start to take over. They're more educated. They're more committed academically to their own successes. And I think what's going to start to happen is this entrepreneurial world uh, that you and I are in right now, which is probably predominantly dominated by men is going to start to change as the women start to gain confidence because they're certainly gaining confidence in my world, which is academia. So uh, 60% of the population at the University of North Carolina, where admissions is not based on anything except standards, 60% of the population are women. Why is that? Because they're superior students coming out of high school. And so we have a moral imperative as the state school for the state of North Carolina to admit the best students. So we don't have a preconceived sort of affirmative action plan for men who aren't as good academically as women. So as a result, what happens to our on-campus population? 60% are women, 40% are men. So uh, I think uh, our worlds are all changing, but I could see this change just from uh, my own family experiences of, of the potential for women athletically. 
You mentioned something really interesting, Anson, about women taking over. So I'm the co-founder of a company called Absolute Internship, and we're also in the, in the international education space. And we're also, we happen also to be one of the biggest um, internship programs overseas and, on, and online for students. And we have seen since inception, the 12 last years, that our enrollment numbers are predominantly women, always, consistently. There are more women than men. And I happen to believe the same as you, that women are more committed in their studies. They want to do well. They want to they wanna succeed, so to speak. So they actively seek out these type of ways to step out of the comfort zone and experience life because it's going to give them an edge, so to speak. And I mean, to put it bluntly, they're more serious, you know, than, than young boys. And they happen to reach maturity faster than boys. That's correct. And I, I've seen the same thing. They do. They are mature a lot earlier. And uh, for all those different kinds of reasons, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this adventure into coaching uh, women. How did you get interested in soccer? Because football in Sweden, like we call it, it's something you're born with, you know, but in the US, it's not very big. I mean, it's getting much bigger now. Women football, uh, women's soccer has been quite big for a while because of the success of the national team. But how did you personally get interested in it? Because India, not very big interest there, but, you know, tell me a little bit more about that, Anson. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Honestly, I was just uh, interested in uh, sports growing up. And what's interesting for me when I was growing up is I think having an interest in sports helped me adjust to whatever uh, culture or environment we were in. So obviously, when you're very young, like I was in Bombay and Calcutta, you're not much of a sportsman. But then when we got to uh, uh, Nairobi, Kenya, I was old enough to sort of participate in sports. And uh, Nairobi um, and Kenya being a British colony, I was sent to uh, English schools. And so in the English school system, uh, I was playing sports like uh, uh, field hockey and rugby and cricket. And I was also a boxer. So those are my four sports as a young boy uh, at this school in Nairobi, Kenya. Then when we moved to uh, Addis Ababa, the sports I played were marbles at recess. And I was a great target for marbles because I was a rich, affluent, uh, you know, white boy at an African school. And of course, my marbles were brand new. So everyone wanted to compete with me because when you compete in marbles, you're actually stealing the defeated player's marbles. And you have these different marbles games of, you know, stealing everyone's marbles. So I was a very popular target at uh, uh, St. Joseph's School in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, the uh, local Catholic school. And as a result, I became a fierce defender of my, my new marbles. And as a result, uh, I was very good at competing in all the different sports the school had, from these rock-throwing games that we had to marbles. And then, of course, another game we played during our recesses was football. And I wasn't any good. And, of course, these Africans were a heck of a lot better than I was. But, you know, I enjoyed running around, colliding with people. And so that was my introduction to the game. And I certainly was not a sophisticated athlete uh, in soccer back then, but uh, I enjoyed playing all the sports. And then we uh, moved to uh, Singapore after that stint in Addis Ababa. And my favorite, I guess, sports personality was my physical education instructor. 
And I played all the sports in the Singapore culture. And one of them was soccer. Uh, was I any good? Not really. But it was one of the sports we played. But it's really interesting. As an American raised overseas, you want to be more of an American. So the sports I, I had to adopt in order to feel my own culture were, you know, sports like basketball. And, and they didn't have baseball there, but I was a big softball player. So I played softball and basketball. And yeah, we played, you know, recreational football, recreational soccer. And my physical education instructor was a very good soccer player from, uh, from Ceylon, which of course is now Sri Lanka. So for me, uh, these were my cultural influences, but also in all the different places I lived, I adopted to the local sports culture. So in Southeast Asia, I started playing badminton and ping pong and, you know, the Southeast Asian uh, sports cultures. And so for me, it was just a, a question of adapting to the environment I was in. And that was one of the best things for me as a little athlete is, okay, what's your culture? Well, that sport, well, I've never played it. So I would pick up whatever the local sport was and jump into it. But growing up, I was never a particularly good uh, footballer. I ended up in a Swiss boarding school and our senior class was tiny. We had like, I think, 25 kids in the senior class. Only five of us were athletic. So the five of us had to play all the different sports from, you know, certainly soccer to basketball to tennis to the ski team. So, you know, the, the few athletes in the class had to do everything, which was fine with me because there wasn't a sport out there I didn't absolutely love. And then I ended up going to college and I ended up in a school in, Saint, in uh, San Antonio, Texas called St. Mary's. And uh, the only sport I could play with at a collegiate level was soccer. And I jumped on the team there, and I was one of the few Americans starting on the team because a lot of the kids on the soccer team at St. Mary's were missionary kids or kids from areas of the world where we had our mission. The Marianist Teaching Order, which ran the school, had a lot of South American kids in there. So obviously, uh, these South Americans were superior, uh, certainly to my level of, of football. And so I sort of backdoored into the sport, played a little bit of tennis at St. Mary's. But mostly I was a, a footballer. And uh, then I transferred to North Carolina and then jumped into the intramural program enthusiastically, playing all the different sports uh, with great passion and success. And at UNC, I basically played uh, soccer and uh, uh, play, played rugby. And so for me, I just loved all the sports that were out there and became passionate about whatever particular sport I was playing at the time. And a part of my, I guess, sports education was going from one culture to another. What role did your mother play in that? Because you said she was the more athletic one you grew up, when you grew up among your parents. Did she encourage you to try out different sports? What role did she have in, in you and in fostering this type of mentality and interest? Both my parents uh, supported me in almost everything I did. My father was uh, clearly uh, uh, the more aggressive personality in my upbringing. But my mother was a champion athlete of, uh, from her university days. I think she set swimming records at American University outside of DC. And I think she was number one in singles until I think her sister got there. And I think she may have fallen in number two, but she was a very good collegiate athlete. My father uh, was a very competitive and aggressive uh, businessman. But he didn't have the sort of athletic genes my mother had. But both nurtured uh, everything I was interested in. 
My mother was very good about turning me into a reader. She would recommend these different books for me to read. And, uh, and originally, as I shared with you, all I was interested in was military histories. And, you know, I had this book about fighter planes in the Second World War. And to this day, I can still identify a P-38 Lightning, you know, when it comes on the screen, because I know the shape of its, you know, twin hulls. And, and I can identify a, a Thunderbolt. I can identify a Mustang. I can identify, to this day, I'm 70 years old. And these are books I read as a 12-year-old, and I can still identify the shapes of World War II aircraft uh, because of the books I was interested in. But then my mother started to give me other kinds of books. And as a result, I've become a lifetime reader, thanks to my mother. She gave me this book when I was a, a freshman in high school, Nicholas Montserrat's The Cruel Sea. And I read it, and I was so impressed with the writing. I didn't know, you know, the English language could really move you the way this book moved me. And all of a sudden, it was perfect timing. I was sent to this Swiss boarding school. We had study halls three different times during the day. And during the study halls, you had to be sitting erect at your desk in your room with your door open. And so you would finish your homework relatively quickly. So you still had to be sitting at your desk, you know, upright. And so what did all of us become at this Swiss boarding school? All of us became readers. And all of a sudden, the timing was perfect because all of a sudden she introduced this extraordinary writer to me. And from then on, it was, you know, we went to the moon with reading everything. And this was the uh, high school that uh, uh, the author of uh, Le Petit Prince went uh, to school. And so Saint-Exupéry was a, basically a, a graduate of our boarding school in Switzerland. And so, uh, you know, we were sort of seeped in the literary culture of Europe with the people that we had that taught us, but also we had time now to read all day. And so I became a voracious reader. That hasn't changed. Uh, I spend a lot of my day reading everything I can. And uh, for me, that's been my, my education. I mean, the irony is I'm a football coach, but uh, my passion is, is reading. I love it, Anson. I also love to read. I used to go to, we couldn't afford books when I grew up. But I, I went to the public library in the little town in Sweden where I grew up, 10,000 people. And there I could borrow books. I would sit there and read. And because my parents, they, 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 they were working in a factory. So I couldn't get that sort of intellectual you know, no, knowledge from them. So my parents would encourage me to go and read because there I could meet mentors virtually or, or in the stories, so to speak. So I would read a lot of books, and I still do now. And I love Le Petit Prince because um, <laughs> there are so many. The thing is, the more you, the more often you read it, the more lessons you learn because you're a different man or you're a different woman. You know, once you read it the, the second or the third time, and that's what I, what's what I love with that that book. But about books, what is the book that you have gifted the most? I guess the one that's had the biggest impact wasn't a book. It was a, a commencement address. But uh, as you can imagine, because I love to read, uh, I forced all of my athletes to read as well. And we have these cycles of the books they read. Right now, uh, our season's over. They're about to go into exams. So there are no assigned readings yet. But as soon as exam ends, they're going to get this uh, email message from me asking the freshman to buy a book by Hiram Smith, who's the Franklin side of Franklin Covey. And it's the 10 natural laws of successful time and life management, because most freshmen need to know how to manage their time. And so they'll be reading this book in the spring. 
We'll be meeting uh, and discussing it for half an hour each week of January, February, March, and April. And even though uh, the book is the reason we're getting together to have these discussions, that's just the starting point. Because from this discussion about the book, I will launch into their lives and not just their football lives, but their real lives about, you know, you are the way you spend your time. And so how do you spend your time? And so basically that book is read by the freshmen. Uh, the sophomores this spring will be reading another basically uh, LDS book. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Mormon. Uh, uh, LDS is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so another uh, basically secularized biblical book is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So that's a book that all of the sophomores will read. And we'll discuss that once a week again for half an hour. And the uh, juniors will read uh, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And so I think the book that I've probably recommended the most is Victor Frankl's book. And the, uh, the book that I think has the biggest impact on the kids that come through my program is that one because of the simple ideas in this incredibly profound and meaningful book. But the one that I think uh, resonates mostly with the age group I'm coaching and teaching is a commencement address by uh, David Foster Wallace called This is Water. It's in the language of the kids that I coach. And it's an absolutely brilliant commencement address on how you should live your life. And it's about basically leading a compassionate life. And uh, <laughs> honestly, in my country right now, holy cow, do we all need to read this book. I mean, the nature of American politics right now is so unbelievably negative. We have no affection for each other, you know, based on who you voted for or whether or not you support the big lie. And uh, my American culture is being shattered because most people have not read or understand or live that book. And so I would say the most impactful and most important book right now for all of us to read in my country is This is Water. Because David Foster Wallace, in the most perfect language for the age group that I coach, I think provides insights into the way we should conduct our lives that's absolutely brilliant, especially now. And then basically, uh, I can go through all these other books that uh, my freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors read. But basically, uh, we cycle these different books. Some of them are football books. We have a book uh, by Carly Lloyd. That's a wonderful book about her evolution as a footballer. But there are other books, uh, you know, like uh, Atomic Habits, because obviously what you're trying to impact with kids is to get them to basically have the proper habits, because if you have the proper habits, you're going to lead an extraordinary life. So that's a book's a part of it. We have them also read Grit. The author of Grit, uh, Angela Duckworth, is a friend of mine. So we have them all read that book because what's happening now in this age of entitlement is the average American is losing grit. And I think the thing that's separated our culture, in addition to our, obviously, our natural resources that have put us in an extraordinary position, is the typical grittiness of, well, the American entrepreneur, because I think that's, you know, obviously a, a model for uh, uh, so much of what goes on in this country, the successful people that just grind it out. So the grit book, I think, is important from that perspective. So these are all books that our, our kids, you know, read and share and we discuss and and it's an opportunity for us to get involved in their lives. And I could go on and on and on because I do nothing but read all the time. But for me, discussing these ideas with these people uh, that are obviously impressionable, and you can see it 
change them. I mean, we had a girl over for Thanksgiving. Our kids all went home for Thanksgiving. We lost early in the NCAA tournament this year. So it was one of the few Thanksgivings we got to spend separately because the kids all went home. But two kids stayed with me. And on the ankle of one of my kids that stayed and had Thanksgiving with us was This Is Water. So obviously that book was so impactful for her. For her she actually tattooed those uh, words on her ankle. And this is a girl that does love to read. And the book that impacted her in the most positive way so much that now she has ink on her ankle to celebrate it is David Foster Wallace's commencement address. Super impactful. I will definitely look up that after this show on, on YouTube. I love commandment speeches. When I want to get fired up, I watch one. So definitely going to take that into consideration. I have a, a tactical question. When you give out the books or encourage the students to buy these books to read, how many weeks do you give them to read a book? Like how many weeks or months do they have in order to finish the book? And how often do you meet? Do people slack? Do people not read? What do you do about them? Yeah, so obviously I'm not naive. Some of the kids who come into the meetings I know haven't read the books. The uh, meetings are small because in a typical uh, recruiting class, I have five to eight people. So these meetings have five to eight people in them, which is good because then they all have to participate. And we sort of go around the room. I'll ask a question. I went to law school, so I'm very comfortable with the Socratic method. The Socratic method is terrifying because you ask a question and then the, uh, the law professor looks down at his role and then picks a name out. So in your mind, even after he asks the question, you're answering it because you don't want to have the public humiliation when he calls your name out to not be comfortable with answering it. So you go through a law class exhausted because even though he's only called on you once, you've answered 40 questions in your mind. So you leave the class absolutely shredded because you've answered every question in your mind. Socratic method is a wonderful methodology, especially when you don't allow volunteers to answer the question, where you just sort of <laughs> arbitrarily pull out, yeah, you. So all of a sudden, the kids have to answer it. Now, and I know the kids are weaving and bobbing, and some kids you know, don't read a lick, but they're trying to pretend like they have, which is human nature. Some kids are very conscientious. Some kids love to read. Some kids that are not stars on the soccer field are stars in the book club. And they revel in it and their answers are deep and profound. And I want their teammates to hear their, their ideas. So I'm not the least bit naive about the kids that read and don't read. We will make these assignments shortly for the spring books, but these spring books haven't changed. The freshmen will still read Hiram Smith's books. The sophomores will read, you know, Stephen Covey's book and the juniors will read uh, basically Victor Frankel's book. We set the seniors free because all of our seniors, in theory, have graduated in December because in the United States, the pro league is a winter, spring, and summer league. So we want to set our kids free. They accelerate graduation. So they've all graduated by December. So we don't have any seniors, in theory, in the spring. In the summer, they have their assignments when they go home for Christmas break. So in theory, they're reading uh, these books through Christmas break. And we send this information out to the kid on what book to buy, but we're also sending it out to the parent. So the parent knows their own kids. Every parent knows if they've, you know, they've raised a jackass. And so hopefully the parents are trying to encourage their kid to read the book in theory. But I know the ones that don't. And I can always predict in advance who's going to weave and bob through it and who's, who's not. Because uh, when you're a football coach, you get to know these kids very well, very quickly. 
And I don't go out of my way to humiliate them or embarrass them. No, because I just want them to evolve as human beings. Hopefully, they'll get excited about some aspect of the conversation and maybe read occasionally. But there are enough that reads, the conversation's scintillating. And then in the summer, we send out the book list, which changes almost every summer in May. Kids finish exams at different times in May, and then they go home, and then they're expected to read these books through the summer. And again, the freshmen uh, usually have one or two books to read. And the freshman book, by the way, and you might want to read this because, holy cow, is this one of the best books I've ever assigned. And it's a book uh, by a friend of mine that I met on a speaking circuit. He and I were speaking together in, uh, in Colorado one year, and we rode together. We were picked up at the same time at the airport and rode to the uh, wherever we were speaking together. And we developed a friendship just on the ride from the airport to where we were speaking. And then because he was so interesting, I listened to him speak and he listened to me speak. And as a result, we developed a relationship. And he wrote a book and he teaches uh, at uh, NYU in New York. And he wrote a book called You Thrive. It's the letter U and then Thrive. This is one of the best books for incoming freshmen I have ever read. And my freshmen will testify to the same thing. And it's basically on how to manage their new lives because they're independent for the first time. And they're given all this wonderful information I wish I had an understanding of when I arrived as a freshman in college. So it's an absolutely fantastic book. So the freshmen read that. And again, the sophomores might read Carly Lloyd's book, as I was sharing, or Grit or Atomic Habits. And then, of course, the seniors all read This is Water by David Foster Wallace. But they're also reading The Second Mountain by David Brooks. And the reason we have them read, the seniors read David Brooks and David Foster Wallace is because these are two people at the absolute opposite ends of the political spectrum. So David Brooks is a radical conservative and David Foster Wallace is a radical uh, uh, liberal. And what I love about these two books is they arrive at the same place with completely different, I guess, ideologies and methodologies, they arrive at the same place. They arrive at the place of being compassionate for the people around them. And so as a result, because of course, uh, it's like my favorite Michael Jordan quote, when he was asked, you know, why he wasn't more politically active as a black man that had great credibility and visibility in the United States, his line was perfect. He says, well, Republicans buy shoes too. So he wasn't going to be, you know, this black liberal icon and then lose a percentage of his business empire because Republicans buy shoes, too, which I thought was a wonderful statement about, you know, trying to remain neutral in order to basically be the, the most extraordinary capitalist. So what I love about having my seniors read those two books is how extraordinarily eerily they arrive at the same place. And they, again, arrive, you know, with different premises. And so uh, what I want the Republicans to do is to embrace the liberals. What I want the liberals to do is to embrace the, uh, the Republicans, because we have to unify this country. And right now we're so radically divided. Uh, so and not that this has a huge impact on them, because basically all of us believe what our parents believe. Usually they're still going to defend, you know, whatever radical ideology they're brought up with. But still, I want them to have a glimmer of hope because I hammer this point home. Do you see that from this starting point, 
this liberal ended up in the same finishing point as this conservative who started with a completely different initial ideology and different ideas. And so it's just a, you know, not a very complex or very deep way to sort of unite the clans, but it's my small effort to basically form a team because that's my moral imperative. I'm trying to form a team. And so I'm trying to get everyone to embrace everyone and everyone's going to be different, as you well know, because I can see that you certainly had a challenge growing up in Sweden. I can look at the screen and see that your ethnicity was a challenge growing up in a completely uh, different culture. But obviously, one of the things I love about Sweden and Norway and Finland and Denmark, for that matter, is the more uh, the further north you go in, in Europe, the more liberal the leadership and the more embraceive the diversity is. In fact, uh, I read a wonderful book review of Angela Merkel because she was also embracing uh, immigration in a very aggressive way. So for me, uh, I completely embrace everything in Northern Europe because I think the leadership up there is extraordinary. So in my small way, I'm trying to impact on my culture. That's all we can do. Improve 1% each day, you know, trying to make the world 1% better. That's what matters. I agree. Anson, I want to talk a little bit about soccer. And I want to ask you, what separates from your very lengthy career in coaching, what separates the future stars and the average player? Because there's only a tiny, tiny percentage that make it, so to speak, to professional careers. What makes that little difference? Well, thank you for that question. Basically. I meet with the players formally in, I guess, goal-setting meetings three times a year. And these goal-setting meetings last anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And we're literally breaking down what I call their personal narrative. If you want to change your place in the world, you have to change your personal narrative. And so here's a cliche I stole from Nick Saban, the famous Alabama football coach. And it's a wonderful phrase. He says, average players want to be left alone. Good players want to be coached. Great players want the truth. And I love that because while I'm sharing that with my team, I want everyone thinking, oh my gosh, yep, I guess I'm an average player because I want to be left alone. I don't want him to you know, critique me. I hate it whenever he points out a mistake I've made. And then I know the ones that want the truth because all they want is criticism because they are so resilient and tough. They don't need praise from me. They know they're good, but they don't want just to be good. They want to be extraordinary. The kids that come from my program, they want to win gold medals. They want to win world championships. They want to sign lucrative professional contracts. These are the best of the best. And hopefully in my recruiting, and when I bring in those five to eight players a year, hopefully, you know, two or three or four of them want the truth. And hopefully, No more than one, two, or three of them want to be left alone. And so part of their evolution to becoming these elite players is to review these 10 different qualities that can separate them. Because in theory, they do want to become extraordinary. Because there's no way anyone picks my program if they want to live comfortably, if they want to be guaranteed playing time, if they want to be guaranteed they're going to start as freshmen. You don't pick the University of North Carolina if you want to live comfortably. No. Our reputation is such that if you've picked us, you've picked a hard road to hoe. And so here's what we talk about. And we have the players actually 
evaluate themselves against these 10 different principles. And we have them evaluate themselves in these 10 different areas with a grade that they're giving themselves. And the grade they're giving themselves is I am an Olympic caliber athlete in this category. I'm going to give myself a five. I am a professional level athlete in this category. I'm going to give myself a 4.5. I am a UNC starter in this area. I'm going to give myself a four. I'm a kid that gets subbed in in every half. I'm going to give myself a 3.5. I make the travel team in this category. I can give myself a three, et cetera, all the way down to two. So the first thing is self-discipline. The second thing is competitive fire. The third thing is self-belief. The fourth thing is, is love of the ball. The fifth thing is love of the game. And in love of the game, there are two aspects of that. There's love of playing the game. And there's love of watching the game. The seventh thing is basically a grit, that quality you and I were talking about with Angela Duckworth's book by the eponymous name. The other qualities are coachability. They are connection. And so when you look at all those 10 different things, the kids are evaluating themselves against it. I am sitting there as basically a critic, and I'm going to argue with them if I disagree with their self-evaluation. Why? Because I want them to get to the truth. And the mistake so many of us make is we protect ourselves from the truth by creating a false personal narrative. This false personal narrative we all create for ourselves protects us from pain, and it protects us from accountability. Because none of us want to suffer the pain of underachievement. So we have an excuse for why we haven't achieved. And in sport, it's the same thing. In our lives, we all have personal narratives why we haven't succeeded. And the first time that you will absolutely be free to achieve is when you don't bring up excuses for lack of personal achievement. As soon as you take full responsibility for everything in your life, you have now finally gained control of your life. So in this player conference, that's the conversation. Will you embrace all 10 of these different categories? And will you embrace the truth about them? There's only one category I will not debate with the player, and that's self-belief. If the player says they have a five in self-belief, which is an Olympic caliber athlete in self-belief, I will not debate it. I've had incredibly average players who have believed they are world beaters that as a result have completely transformed their contribution because of this extraordinary self-belief. And so I think all of us that lead, like you in the business community or me in athletics, the last thing we ever want to touch and discourage is someone who has extraordinary dreams, who feels he is the best thing since sliced bread. I will never interfere with that because if you have that quality, and by the way, I have that quality. My confidence has completely overwhelmed my talent. But, and again, this gets back to my mom and my dad, I have always had extraordinary confidence. And I'm sure it somehow came from one or both parents. And I have cherished it because I have felt I could do things that were just ridiculous. And a result, as a result, I have. I mean, the first thing was we won the first world championship in women's football. This is not the American game. This is the world game. How is that possible? Well, I believed we could. No one else in the world did. I believed we could beat the world at its own game. And then we did. So I think what's critical 
in these player conferences is to never interfere with self-belief. And even if you're thinking this kid gives herself a five and you're internally, you're rolling your eyes. I will never roll my eyes in front of a kid who says she's a five when I think she's a two. I will let her continue to believe that because that's going to impact her in the most positive way. So self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball, all these different things. The players are getting a grade on it. And then we are calculating these numbers and it's spitting out a certain number. And that's going to project where their current belief system is going to send them. And so what I want them to understand is that's going to measure their success. Not anything I do is, of course, in the personal narratives of the week, I am to blame as to why they're not any good or starting. And who are they in, I guess, conspiracy with? They're in conspiracy with their parents, who, while the kid was growing up, thought they were the best thing they'd ever seen, because they were always not just the best player on the team they came from, or the best player in the league they were playing with, or the best player in every game the parents had ever seen them play. The parents had never seen anything but incredible success for this kid. Now she comes into my program and doesn't even play. The parents are incredulous. And so the player very rarely has the courage to call their parents up after the first two or three days of practice. Oh, by the way, mom and dad, boy, did I have my ass kicked in today. I've never been in an environment where I was the worst player in the field. But you know what? Today I was. Today I was the absolute worst player on the field. And I just want you guys to know, this is a new experience for me, where I was the worst player. No, that's not what the kid calls and talks to their parents about. The kid calls and talks to their parents about a false narrative. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had some really good moments today. And, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I have the potential to start. And so then when the kid doesn't start, the parents are incredulous. And so now the parents attack the decision maker, which is me. Well, I can't believe this person that recruited you to come play there isn't playing you. Uh, Have you done something to offend him? And so all of a sudden, it's not based on standards or performance. It's based on all these extraneous factors that protects the kid from pain and responsibility. I have only had one player that I could publicly see protected me in front of the person that I thought was her mother. We were in Riva del Garda, Italy. I was coaching the U.S. women's national team. And my starting left midfielder for the first time in her life went to the bench. The kid we had brought in to replace her was a whirling dervish from Wilton, Connecticut, by the name of Christine Lilly. Christine Lilly is the top, basically, caps winner in the world, male or female of all time. But this is back when she got her first cap for the United States. She comes in, and I'm starting her in place of Tracy Bates. This is back in the day when no one had a cell phone. We were in a hotel. There was one phone in the hotel that could reach the United States. And uh, I decided to go out for a run late one night and uh, I'm downstairs and I'm stretching out a bit and I can hear Tracy on the phone with the person I assumed was her mother, but I could only hear her side of the conversation. And this is what I heard. No, uh, Anson's not mad at me. No, I passed all my fitness tests. And then I could hear her choking up a bit. Don't you understand? Christine is better than I am. Don't you understand? Christine is better. This conversation was with someone It was trying to protect her from me by saying, oh, my gosh, I've cheated her that, you know, she started for me forever and now she's not starting. I mean, it's my fault, blah, 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 blah. And here she was. She was defending me, defending me. No, this kid's better. 
this kid's better. And then uh, that first world championship in 1991 in Guangzhou, China, they had this big uh, media guide with all the players' pictures in there and little interviews with the players. And every player was asked, you know, who's your role model? Who's your favorite player in the world? And everyone back in those days was saying the, the great Brazilian, Pelé. These are women. Who's their role models? Because there were no women role models back then or female role models. And so they're all saying Pelé, 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 not Tracy Bates. Who's the, the best player and the most basically inspirational player in the world for you? She said, Christine Lilly, the girl that put her on the bench. And so this is an incredibly rare individual. This is a woman with extraordinary character. This is a woman that's so strong. She doesn't need to be protected from pain and responsibility. She will take the pain. She's resilient. She can handle it. But she will also protect me. She's loyal to me in front of someone that's trying to compromise me. But this is the cycle that occurs. The cycle that occurs is with whatever your posse is, they are protecting you from the possibility that you're the one that's the problem, not the coach, not the environment, not this excuse, not that excuse. And if only parents would appreciate that this is the way to raise their children. You're responsible for your own successes and failures. And when you fail, is it painful? Yep. But you can handle it. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning. The sun's going to be out because the sun will rise every morning. And so how should you raise your kids? You should raise your kids for them to embrace every success and failure in the most positive way. But also understand that, you know what? And obviously, this is the message in Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Holy cow, if this guy in a concentration camp can have a positive attitude about life, are you kidding me? When everything he has loved has been murdered, and yet he is positive, his mother and father were murdered, all of his siblings, with the exception of one sister, were murdered, and this guy can have a positive attitude about life in this concentration camp? Surely you can, you know, just because you're not starting anymore. Has your world ended because you're not starting? Are you really that fragile? And so basically, uh, uh, our moral imperative in these conversations is to get them to embrace who they are. And if they want to change, yes, change. Why? Because you're responsible for all of these different choices. None of this stuff we're talking about, self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball, this is not your genetic pool. These are choices you get to make when you wake up in the morning. So if you want to be extraordinary, choose something different when you wake up. Anson, this makes me think a lot on my own athletic journey. So growing up in Sweden, I was a good soccer player. I think I was a good soccer player. I think uh, I was also a very good ping pong player, table tennis player. And I started to train jiu-jitsu, martial arts a few years ago. And we speak about ego now, right? And taking accountability. And you have a grown, grown up man. I'm 35 now, but I think I was 32 when I started. So I'm 32 years old. And basically being submitted, choked, arm locked. And you have no, you don't know how to defend. You don't know, like you're basically run down, you know, every single training. And you can't have a fake personal like narrative there. Like you can't have that, you know, and it humbled me. Like I've always been a humble person, but I was like, this is why 80% of people quit martial arts, but also a lot of things in life. Cause when things get uncomfortable and difficult, we try to make up excuses, you know, 
you're saying it. David Goggins is saying it. I mean, a lot of people are, are, are trying to share this, but I think people are too afraid to, to take that responsibility. And hence, they become parents and then they pass it on to the children and it becomes a vicious circle. Well, I appreciate that because what you're saying really makes me feel good about my profession because I think in athletics, athletics is one of the purest routes to this form of truth because eventually in athletics, you get to make a decision. Are you going to continue to make excuses and protect yourself or are you going to take responsibility? And we also tell our kids this, you don't have to be great at this. This isn't that important. And I tell these kids, you know, if I had a choice for you to either become an Olympic gold medalist or to cure cancer, I would choose curing cancer. Please don't think for a second that I genuinely believe that this has more value than you becoming some sort of scientist that cures cancer. So for me, I want my kids to have as a priority their own personal character, because what I tell all of them is, if you have extraordinary personal character, you're going to attract other people with extraordinary character to you. And as a result, you're going to live an incredibly rich and enjoyable life, a life of value with other people that basically have you know, the right value system. So the most important thing for me in the evolution of the players I'm coaching is their human development. The second most important thing, because after all, I work for a university, is their academic success. And then finally, it's their soccer success. But the, I really appreciate what you shared because one of the things I do like about athletics is it puts them in stark reality to the fact that someone else is better. And then we get to discuss why they're better. And it's not always because of superior talent. It's superior commitment. The self-disciplined player, because here's what's interesting. The first thing we talk about in our meetings is self-discipline. And for a freshman, this is terrifying because now they've got to evaluate themselves in self-discipline with me sitting in front of them. And of course, five is Olympic caliber player, 4.5 is pro level, four is UNC starter level. So they're thinking, well, I certainly want to start. So the minimum number I can give myself is a four. So then they blurt out four. I said, all right, so let's look at uh, your self-discipline. What was the standard for you to come in to the beep and make uh, this year? It was 40. That's right. It was 40. What did you get on the beep? And this beep is basically a numerical fitness test where you run a certain distance, a beep goes off, you come back to the starting line, another beep goes off. And basically these beeps get faster and faster and faster until you just aren't fit enough to hit it. And then you're eliminated. So the beep standard for us is 40. So now I'm asking this kid that claims to have a four in self-discipline, what she got on the beep. And she'll say, well, I got a 28. And I said, well, I'm going to give you a 2.8 in self-discipline because the beep is not something you inherit at birth. No one leaps out of the womb being able to go 40 in the beep. You physically prepare yourself to go 40 in the beep. How? By running your rear end off, by running and running and running and running. That's how you end up with 40 on the beat. So basically this kid that got a 28, she didn't get it done. So she's clearly doesn't have the self-discipline to claim to be a starter, starting caliber player in the beep, which is basically a four 
So now she understands, oh my gosh, he's going to have a number that's going to project every one of these 10 things we're talking about. So it's going to be really hard for me to BS my way through this conversation. And honestly, I haven't figured out a way to have a great numerical touch point for all 10. I have some good ones on the others, but I haven't arrived yet. I'm working on it, but I haven't arrived yet. But now basically they know that this is not a BS session. This is a get it done session. And now they're taking more responsibility. So then we go to, you know, competitive fire. Now they know I've got something up my sleeve for competitive fire. And I do, but they don't realize I have nothing up my sleeve for self-belief. So they tend to have a tendency to be honest. So basically uh, this is critical. You've got to get the personal narrative to the truth as fast as possible, because that's going to change their lives in a positive way. Yes. Anson, I, I know that we uh, we have a limited amount of time, but I have a couple of more questions that I would love to ask you. How do you build a winning group with egos, individuals that want to play each week, but they can't? You have only 11 players that can play. How do you deal with that? I think the three most critical pillars of my program are the first pillar, which we started implementing Uh, as soon as I started coaching, was a reflection of my own personality. I'm very competitive, but I also want that to be announced at every opportunity, how competitive I am. So if I win something, I want that sort of embraced. And so we started this thing called the competitive cauldron. The competitive cauldron is in every single practice, the kids are competing and their wins and losses are a matter of public record. Or take the beat, for example. The first thing you do when you arrive back at the University of North Carolina in August is you take a beat test. It's in the morning of your first day of practice. And what's the standard? Well, you're expected to get to 40. It must be horrible after August, after the oh, summer. It is. <laughs> yeah, although we do it in, indoors. So we're not doing it in the sun. We're actually doing it in an indoor facility to protect them from the sun because we want them to be successful. So again, we've eliminated that excuse. So someone coming from Sweden into our preseason can't use the heat as an excuse because we're indoors. So we've eliminated the Swedish excuse for failing to you know, do well in the beat by being out in the sun because we've eliminated the sun. So we want to have, we want to eliminate every conceivable excuse that we can from this. So anyway, so uh, yeah. So the first thing we do is we in sort of indoctrinate them in the cauldron and everything's in competition. And so On a public bulletin board down in our practice complex, they see where they rank in everything. I think that is the first pillar of our success because these kids are trained in being competitive. They're also trained in being accountable because everything is a matter of public record. So they're trained in winning and they're trained in everything being a matter of public record. So they're not, they're trained in not, you know, protecting themselves from the truth. The second thing that's critical is we want them to live a certain level of core values, which is the way they treat people. Again, getting back to David Foster Wallace, this is water, but also getting back to David Brooks, the second mountain. This is about their evolution as human beings. And if you jumped online right now and just typed into your browser, UNC Women's Soccer Core Values, our 13 core values would pop up for you. And they all have to memorize the quotes attached to every core value, and then they have to live them. And then their, their teammates evaluate them against the core values on a similar scale 
we do it on a four point scale, five points is for the other thing, but four point scale is closer to their grade point averages uh, uh, at UNC academically. So they evaluate their teammates on a four point scale on each core value. Four is an extraordinary example of this core value. Three is they live this core value most of the time. Two is they occasionally live this core value. One is they rarely live this core value, et cetera, et cetera. They can have, you know, 3.5, 3.75. It doesn't have to be exactly, you know, one, two, three, and four. So then they get to see what their teammates think of them. And there's a, a magic line. We want them to live above a three in every core value, but also we want their core value evaluation to be over a three because we want them to live our, basically our, our principles most of the time. And so that's the second pillar. The third pillar is what you and I were spending most of this conversation discussing, which is to get their uh, personal narrative to the truth. So those are the three things that sort of drive our program. And actually, I've, I've now forgotten the question you asked me that sent me off on this long explanation. So what was it again? It was in the team of, a, of in the soccer team, you have 11 starting players, right? Oh, yes, but yes, yes. So yeah, now you have I, so I know- many. If you have so many excellent and extraordinary players with egos, you know, because if you believe you are amazing, you want to play. So, but everyone, not everyone can play each week. How do you deal with that as a leader and as a coach? Right. So what they get to look at is every single day they get to go to the bulletin board. There on the bulletin board shows their rank. So guess what? They're no longer number one in everything. In fact, they are rarely top five in anything. And they are also incredibly rarely in the top 10 in everything. So basically, they are seeing that all these different areas of their game they've got to improve in if they want to get mm-hmm. on the field as a starter. So basically, they've got their, the map is there given to them. Here is your map to get on the field. What's the map? Kick everyone's rear end in all these 28 different categories. If you do that, you're going to play. If you don't, you're not going to play. And then the challenge if you're not going to play is to still support the team and its mission. Because if you're not yeah. playing, you still have to be a positive life force. And if you're not, I have to get rid of you. Yeah. Because we can't have these negative, basically, people as a part of an organization. So I have to get rid of you. So you got to make a decision. You're either going to work your rear end off to play and then be happy. Or if you're not playing, you still have to be positive and happy. So for me, it's these two things that are pushing and pulling against each other. The competitive cauldron, the core values, and then obviously, how does it manifest itself in you? Well, it manifests itself in you in your personal narrative. And so you have to embrace those first two pillars into your personal narrative and then conduct yourself appropriately. So I will keep you if you basically have two out of the three boxes checked. And what are the three boxes? You thrive in the cauldron, but you can't just thrive in the cauldron. You've also got to thrive in either the academic platforms on campus, but also the human qualities. So the cauldron is your competitive qualities. It gets you on the field. And then those other qualities make you a good teammate. So all these things sort of mix together to de- for me to decide whether or not I keep you. Anson, I have um, a last question regarding your coaching as well. It's regarding respect versus likability. So, you know, when you're in a group setting, especially in a, in a sports team like soccer, people are competitive, but you also want to be likable. But some people, they prefer to gain respect. They want people to respect you. How can a player, from the per- player's perspective, gain respect 
rather than likability in the competitive group? First of all, that's an absolutely wonderful question because especially in the context of, of female teams, that is something they debate constantly in their minds of where they draw the line. Because if they draw a very aggressive competitive line in their own minds, they're going to become less likable. And so they've got to make this decision. What we try to do within our culture is to embrace the competitors so that we're trying to get the players to allow the line to be as competitive as hell and still embrace this person off the field. And that's the also the female leadership challenge is a lot of women struggle to lead verbally in my sport because they're always afraid of what their teammates will think of them if they are aggressive verbal leaders, which is why we always talk to them about finding their leadership voice. The leadership voice is a voice that doesn't alienate your teammates, that you can embrace to motivate them, to hold them to higher standards, to drive them to their potential. But that leadership voice can also be a part of why they respect you because of what you do off the field. So even though you can compete like there's no tomorrow on the field, the way you treat them off the field is still going to allow you to move that line very aggressively to becoming more competitive. The best example I use for this is an extraordinary leader I used to coach by the name of Carla Worden, who's now one of the assistant coaches at Duke. She's gotten married and her new name is Carla Overbeck. And when Carla was playing for me at UNC, but then also for the national team, it was extraordinary the different ways she would win respect. And my favorite story is we'd flown from Los Angeles to Hong Kong. We're about to jump on a train to head up to Guangzhou to play in the first women's world championship. And Carla, after this long flight, is helping every girl with her bags take their bags up to the hotel room. Everyone's exhausted. That's a very long flight. The last thing you want to do is to take your own bags up there. And here's this woman helping everyone with their bags, making sure everyone's okay. And then, of course, everyone collapses in exhaustion in the hotel room because of this long flight. But also, Carla's helped everyone. She's helped the equipment manager move the equipment because the equipment manager's got about eight bags. So she's done not only her own bags, she's done the equipment manager's bags. And then she can see this kid really struggling with her bags. And now she's helped her take her bags up. And everyone knows this about her. So when the game begins, when she's screaming at Mia Hamm to track, Mia Hamm is listening. Why? Because Carla helped Mia take her bags up to her room just before you know she crashed in Hong Kong, before the long uh, train ride up to Guangzhou. So she has been able to move the leadership line because of the way she's treated people off the field. And now she's got a very aggressive leadership line that's embraced because everyone knows that she cares about cares about them beyond the game. And so these are all different and real ways where you can move the competitive line to be more competitive and still be embraced and liked and respected. And also the way you can move the leadership line because of the way you've treated people off the field. And as a result, your leadership line has been moved now because you can be more aggressive because these players know you love them and care about them. I love that advice. You know, that story, because you can draw a lot of parallels to the business world and that in any anything, actually, in any organization. 
I think any leader who was listening to this or managing somebody or a team would roll, would learn a lot from this. Thank you for sharing, Anson. My pleasure. Yeah. It's been awesome to have you on the show. And I really appreciate your valuable time, Anson. Where can fee- people find you to learn more about you? And where can they go to say hello to you on social media? We've got three books out there. The first book is about our culture. The title of the book is The Man Watching. The author is Tim Carruthers. And he spent five years with us, a former Sports Illustrated uh, senior writer, and wrote this book about our culture. So if, if you get that book, you'll get all the stories about the creation of this culture. The book that the footballers uh, buy, are there are two. There's one for coaches called Training Soccer Champions. And that's a book uh, that Jurgen Klinsmann read that really he appreciated. In fact, just before he was coaching the German national team in the uh, World Cup in Germany, he brought me over to spend time with the German team before they played the United States. And that was a book he liked about these principles of the competitive culture and that sort of stuff. There's another book. That book uh, was entitled uh, Training Soccer Champions. And the book that I wrote to uh, help kids develop as elite players is Vision of a Champion. In fact, there's a podcast out, the Vision of a Champion podcast, where I speak with a lot of my great former players. In fact, one of the podcasts is with Lucy Bronze, who's the reigning world player of the year. She played for me. She's now uh, playing at Man City. Uh, Tobin Heath was another player I interviewed. Of course, she stars for the United States. Crystal Dunn, another player uh, that played for me that is also a star for the United States. So a lot of these former all-time greats, Mia Hamm is certainly in there. So I've uh, uh, interviewed a lot of my former greats. And I think uh, if you go into the Vision of a Champion podcast, you will hear the opinions of all these players and all these different things we've chatted about on this podcast about how they got to the promised land or to gold medals or world championships or to their performance at a high standard And I think uh, those stories might have some value for your listeners. And for social media, honestly, I'm not on social media. So uh, my kids can tell you how to get there, but I have absolutely no clue. And I'm so sorry, but I don't. And I know my social media people are really upset that I haven't taken the time to memorize any of our social media platforms, but uh, I'm sure sure they're out there. I'm sure uh, any 18-year-old can find them. Absolutely. Everyone check out Anson Dorans. What an amazing uh, episode and so many life lessons. Thank you for being here with me. My pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fika with Rice. I hope you enjoyed the show. Who do you want to have on our show? Let us know by sending me an email at frederick at absoluteinternship.com. And before you go, if you like this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify to get to listen to more inspirational stories and life hacks. We'll really appreciate it. See you next time and much gratitude for listening.